Turb Alpert, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance. is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does every week on Fangraphs Audio, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, this week the Chicago Cubs have decided to send down to the minor leagues Wunderkind, Wunderkind third baseman Chris Bryant, largely because of service time issues and maybe other issues. Beyond that, uh, some of the less obvious benefits, but still benefits perhaps of drafting college uh, and or high school players. Um, Along those same lines, Brady Aiken, the Brady Aiken case. Brady Aiken uh, has undergone Tommy John surgery. Was it inevitable? Perhaps it was inevitable. Uh, But we don't know if it was inevitable. Another person perhaps having Tommy John surgery is Christian Vasquez, Red Sox catcher Christian Vasquez. We will discuss him. And uh, what we will also learn from this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the context for this comment. The, what a girl who's been alive for like four years uh, since they put polio in her head. Fangraphs Audio features Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs, and it begins right now. This is your first, uh, this is, well, not today, but this is going to be your first week with the kid, huh? No, that was last week. Oh, you did, you did it all last week, too? Yeah. Because Amy went, uh, your, well, that's your wife's name. I'm going to say it's your wife's name. Yeah, it is my wife's name. So how did it go? You know, it went okay. I didn't kill him, so that's Yeah, that's number one. Right. That's, that's at least what the state requests. The baby is still alive, so, uh, all is well. They're, they're kind of designed a little bit to stay alive, right? Uh, maybe not on their own. Yeah. I think a little bit of intervention is required. Yeah, okay. All right, very good. Um, let's see. Uh, with regard to baseball, uh, what's the, is there a big story, Dave Cameron? Is, is there a certain place you want to start? Um, well, I think probably the, the big story remains Chris Bryant. Uh, he was optioned to the minors today, but that's a story that has been, in the news for weeks now, and yeah. is maybe may getting slightly stale. I will, well, uh, on uh, to that point, I would like to uh, send out a thanks, at least for myself. Perhaps you would like to send it out too, uh, to Steve Adams of MLB Trade Rumors for referring to Chris Bryant as Wonderkind or Wonderkind. Wo- Chris Wo- Bryant. Wonderkind. Yeah. Wonderkind. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if Steve Steve uh, Steve Adams has German heritage, maybe. Yeah, he, he could. It's also it's just a, it's a very pleasant word. Um, it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you did the math though on Chris Bryant. I mean, this is uh, you. Re- I mean, you really did the math. There's a lot of math that needs to be done to figure out really uh, if it makes sense t- um, to what uh, to to uh, call him up for those ten. Is, is is it really just essentially ten days? And, and if you keep him down for ten days, you get a whole nother year. Yeah, I think it's actually like twelve days, but it's like ten games because there's a couple off days in there. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because so Bryant's not on the forty man roster, so the um, you know, sometimes guys have to spend like three weeks in the minors at the beginning of the year uh, because if they're already on the 40-man roster, if you option a guy and he spends less than 20 days in the minors, the option's basically voided when you call him back up, and those days count as I – mean, the option's still oh, real, but those so days count as service time days. Because Bryant is not on the 40-man, they didn't option him. They just reassigned him to minor league camp, so he can come up before the 20-day window um, because the, he has no chance of getting the service time credited to him that he doesn't get. Uh, and I think whatever the a service year is 172 days and there's 183 days in a season, so he needs to miss 11 days essentially. 
Okay. Uh, my, my guess is the Cubs will probably keep him down slightly longer than that to make it, like, not as obvious. Like, he, I wouldn't be shocked if he spent two or three weeks down there, especially because he didn't play the field a ton in the minor leagues. He's had some shoulder issues, and they'll probably want him to play the outfield some. So he might even spend all of April there. I don't think they're going to call him up exactly on day 11, but they might. Right. The um, uh, There's obviously, I mean, some recent history. What, what kind of class of player gets put in this? It, there's uh, this... I guess uh, belongs to this this group, right? I mean, Chris Bryant, we know, is one of them. He's a top, he's a very highly rated prospect. And there's more or less, I guess, what Luis Valbuena has now moved to the Houston Astros. Is that right? Yeah. And he was playing mostly third base for them. They obviously have other candidates to play third base. Assumed they're going with some combination of what, Tommy LaStella and Mike Olt to begin the season? Probably. Probably mostly Michael. Lestella is going to play second base uh, with Arizmendi Alcantara. Uh, now that Javier Baez is also going to head to AAA. And is the the, the move for Baez is that a, a cost cutting measure, or is that simply because Javier Baez swings and misses so much? That's a strikeout cutting measure. I mean, I think you know Baez. They probably wanted to win the second base job coming into camp, and they thought you know maybe with a little bit more work they could you know cut down on this contact problem. And then he struck out 20 times in 50 at bats in spring training and hit 140 with no power. So uh, I mean, Javier Baez is like an interesting talent, but he's not major league ready, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's only 21 or 22 years old. Uh, the skill set probably takes a while to catch up, and I think you know Alfonso Soriano didn't really break out until he was a little bit older. I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Baez. You know, maybe it took another even year to to really get to the point where he could actually help the Cubs. Right. Okay. And so it'll be oh, so Tommy Lestella. Uh, maybe. I, if you're gonna bet, I would imagine all contra probably gets a little bit more playing time. But Tommy Lestella, though, right? Am I? I mean, they have him around, which you're excited <laughs> about. Makes you feel a little better about Dean and I getting option to the minors over the weekend. Yeah. Well, I said that. But actually, there's a whole there's a whole slew of these guys. Um, second base is an interesting position, right? Because it's really the the position of misfit players? It's it's a deficiency land. Like, you aren't good enough to do something else, so you play second base. Right. And, uh, but Jace Peterson, I believe, has the starting job for the for Atlanta. Yeah. By, yeah. That, yeah, the Braves are going to be terrible. And then uh, and Johnny Javatella. Java Javatella is, I think he's the starter for the Angels, isn't he? Yeah, that just means the Angels are stupid. Who <laughs> has a $140 million payroll and they can't find a better second base than that? That's that's a problem. Well, they let they gave away Howie Kendrick in well, a trade. I mean, they got some give him away, right? Yeah, but they did trade him for uh, a future piece in, when they're in a win now mode, which you know seemed to be the popular thing to do this winter. Is contenders getting worse on purpose? Uh, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that that was necessarily the right call for the Angels. Right. Okay. Um, well, Javid, I will submit that Javid tells he he's compelling to me at least, which is maybe uh, damning, damning. <laughs> Damning for some people, damning for people who actually evaluate baseball. But it, yeah, I mean, I think the funny thing is, like, a lot of these guys that you've liked have you've been basing it on the projections, right? Like, you know, Steamers really liked Jace Peterson in the past, or uh, you know, Corey Kluber. Some of these guys you've had like, hey, look at this projection that's really good for them. I think even the projections hate Giavatella. Yeah, he's... sometimes it's the sometimes it's not always the projections. Ja, yeah, Giavatella is strange. Uh, with Jace Peterson, it was because of the. He had the, sort of the tools thing, right? The tools thing, right. Yeah, he had met right. a certain class of qualifications. Right. So with Giovatella, like, he did hit well in AAA, but it was almost all BABIP and not a lot of power, and he's a terrible defensive second baseman. So if you're, a, you know, a butcher of the glove and you're not a great hitter, uh, why do you like this guy so much? Well, he is Italian. Okay. 
that's, that's part of it. All right, so let, well, let's let's get back to the, the Cubs for the moment. There you don't want to spend more time analyzing Johnny Giotella. We can we can get to that later. <laughs> um, uh, so Chris Bryant. So so essentially, um, the, the Cubs are in a are at a point now where it looks like they'll have uh, a t- the sort of team that we would expect to compete for a, a playoff spot, right? Yeah, they're wild card contenders this year. Right, and that and that is that makes it so that. Uh, their wins might be more important than a than a team that is decidedly not going to make the playoffs, or maybe like in the case of the Nationals, that is almost that has a very strong chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, this is the concept that we've you know uh, referred to as the win curve. Uh, you know, one of, one of the ones that came up with it, but you know, it's kind of been popularized over the last five or six years, uh, where you know basically. At the bottom edge of the curve, probably from 70 to 80-ish wins, uh, the marginal gain is not so valuable. I mean, it's it's not nothing, but it's not as valuable nearly as the you know somewhere between the 85th and 90th win, uh, where it really peaks, and then from 90 on, there's diminishing returns because it's not nearly as important uh, to kind of you know win your division by 15 games like the Nationals did last year. Not not all that helpful. So there's a, a peak right around 85 to 90 wins where these these extra marginal wins are, are extremely valuable. Uh, the Cubs aren't quite there. They're really close to it. I think we have projected those about an 83-win team. Uh, but that was, I think, an 83-win team with Chris Bryant only playing about half the season. So if you think he's going to play almost all of the season, maybe you bump him up to 84, uh, maybe even 85 if you think he's amazing. Uh, and, you know, they're certainly close enough to the win curve to where – it's not necessarily a slam dunk that they should keep him down for, you know, four, six, eight weeks, as I, I wrote in the piece I did for Just a Bit Outside last week. If they had to keep him down for, you know, two months, they'd probably be better off just promoting him on opening day and paying uh, the escalated salaries that would come with him getting free agency sooner because there's so much short-term value. Because it's only a 10 days, like, no player matters that much for 10 days. Mm-hmm. What's the most, I mean, what, what, if you say that, if you think Mike Trout is worth 10 wins, over yeah, you're saying about, that's about a half a win every 10 days. Okay, right. And even yeah. that, so that, I mean, so you, your team would have to be really right in the thick of things in terms of the win curve for that, for that to matter. Yeah, right. I mean, you, yeah. And I don't think there's any point at which, you know, even Mike Trout, you said, we know this guy is a nine or 10 win player going into the season, which at that point you're, you're obviously not even considering holding him down. But even then it still might be the right decision to say, I'm going to make the best player in baseball spend two weeks in the minor leagues in order to get one extra year of team control because, you know, the the marginal loss of half of a win is not that big a deal compared to having, you know, a peak season of the best player in baseball under team control, uh, which is why in the next CBA they really need to, to make an adjustment and make it a little bit more difficult for teams to hold guys down in order to get the seventh year of team control. If this, If the deadline was June 1st or something, I think we'd see Chris Bryant in the majors. And you you are a fan of a rule change that would uh, compel teams to play their best players. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's in the best interest of everyone, right? Like, the Cubs don't really want to play Mike Old at third base. It's just the smart thing to do, given the incentives that the CBA offers. And Chris Bryant doesn't really want to go to the minor leagues. He wants to be in the big leagues and hitting home runs and, you know, being a star and getting introduced on opening day. And this isn't in anyone's best interest. It's just a financial incentive that was created out of a poor structure. And so it's the kind of thing that should be fixed. I think fixing it is a little bit tricky, though. I think if you look at it and you say, you know, the easiest way to to kind of change it is to push back the deadline 
uh, or essentially to make a service year shorter so that teams can't stick a guy in the minors for two weeks or three weeks or whatever it would be in order to get that extra service year. But if you propose that to the owners and be like, hey, we're going to make it easier for everyone to be a free agent because we're going to make a service year shorter, they're not going to want to do that. That's going to increase their own costs. There's no real rational reason for them to want to make it easier to get to free agency, which is when prices escalate. So they're going to say, well, what are you going to give us in return, right? And that's then the Players Association is going to have to negotiate some kind of cost to themselves in order to help out guys like Chris Bryant or Evan Longoria from a few years ago or these guys like one or two guys a year that this happens to who are junior members of the union or in Chris Bryant's case not even a member of the union yet. Uh, and so they would have to negotiate something away from their veterans and the, the kind of the larger class of players they represent and who are paying dues in order to come up with a kind of a, a benefit to guys who are either not in the union or have had the, the very least amount of service time in the union uh, and just to help a very small pool of players. So neither side is really all that incentivized to fix this, uh, which is a little bit of a problem. Uh, when do you become a member of the MLBPA? When you get added to the 40-man roster. Oh, when you're added to the 40-man roster. So you could you could not necessarily have played any major league games, but you could still be a, a member of the union. Yeah, once you're on the 40-man roster, you're in. Okay, all right. Uh, so Javier Baez is a member of the union. Well, he's also played the major leagues, but yes. Right. Yeah. There are other people who haven't played the major leagues you're suggesting who are... Yeah, if, you're, if your contract gets purchased, uh, that's what happens when they call you up and add you to the 40-man roster. The, the phrasing is that your contract was purchased mm-hmm. uh, by the team. That makes you a union member. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, here's a here's a question. It, it may be it may mean nothing, but the uh, you mentioned with Chris Bryant, there's a 10-day. Uh, he only has to what sit out for 10, 12 days, something like that, because he's not really being optioned because he's not a member of the 40-man. Yeah. Uh, the reason he's ready is because he was a really good college player. Uh, and I wonder to what degree is this, uh, or is because, or maybe to no degree at all, because it's such a specific case. It, th- there seems to be this like a sort of an ancillary consideration when choosing to draft a, a high school versus a college player. Is that is that enough to uh, to make it say, oh, we want this college player because this might be a benefit in the future? I don't think so. I think when you're drafting at that point, you're probably not trying to figure out how much leverage you're going to have on future promotion. Uh, I will say, however, it probably is uh, a little bit of a, a point in terms of uh, signing bonus. So, like, one of the main reasons the Cubs are doing this is because they know they have basically no chance of signing Chris Bryant to a long-term deal. One, Scott Boris is his agent. But two, they've already given him, what, seven or eight million dollars when he signed out of college. They gave him a really large signing bonus. The Generally, what you see, like Starling Marte, for instance, who took a very team-friendly contract last oh, year, yeah, right. he had signed for $85,000 in, like, a boot. Buscone probably took a large part of that, and so he might not have gotten you know more than ten or twenty grand, or maybe not even that, and probably sent it home to his family. So he's sitting to... there as one of as a decidedly above average major leaguer who's basically, I mean, he's not poor, but relative to his peers, he's making basically zero dollars. Yeah, I mean, all of Mar- what Marte had to spend like four or five years in the minor leagues. He's not the youngest guy around. He's already in his mid twenties. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's basically at his physical peak is, is an all-star level major league player and has probably doesn't have a million dollars in the bank. It is in a, at least at the point where they offered him a, a contract extension. Maybe he had a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank, which you know I would be happy to have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank. But I'm not one of the forty or fifty best players in, on the in baseball on the planet. And so for Marte, he was in a a specifically disadvantaged position because of where he came from that made him much more uh, incentivized to sign a guaranteed deal that set him for life and set his family for life and, uh, you know, took away all of the risk that he was carrying of having to work at any point for the rest of his life. And 
Chris Bryant already doesn't have that problem. And, you know, these guys who are very high draft picks or, you know, the bonus babies out of Latin America, you know, when they get, you know, millions of dollars as a teenager, as long as they're not complete idiots and they invest it even reasonably well, mm-hmm. uh, then they're probably fine and, and can at least uh, not have to worry about, you know, having a, a long-term job at Walmart for the next 30 years. I don't know if you uh, if you remember, and I, I I may not even be remembering it correctly. When there was a there was an NBA uh, strike slash lockout in the late nineties. Yeah. There's someone had asked um, uh, Patrick Ewing. I don't know if it's just because he was a star player, or if it was because he was involved with the union. Uh, someone asked him what you know what why this was continuing to go on, and he said, uh, "You don't understand, Patrick Ewing." He referred to himself in the third person. Patrick Ewing makes a lot of money, but Patrick Ewing spends a lot of money. Yeah, I think uh, even a more recent uh, comparison was a few years ago when the NFL had a labor issue. Where there was a lockout or a strike, which I don't remember which one it was. And a lot of the younger NFL players who got basically all of their money up front in, ter- in the terms of signing bonus because of how the league salary cap works right. and have like very low salaries that aren't even guaranteed. They can be cut and those can go away. I think like Vince Young uh, was very famous for spending crazy amounts of money on parties, and he had basically blown through $30 million dollars uh, and he was out of money. And so there was a cottage industry that developed around the NFL lockout to basically loan these guys money at like loan shark type rates, uh, and was like bankrupting NFL players who didn't have any ability to save for the future and got all their money up front. Uh, and you know, it's certainly possible that, you know, Chris Bryant, one of these guys could blow through their entire uh, portfolio if they were stupid, but hopefully Chris Scott Boris wouldn't let them do that. Right. Uh, we were talking basically there about the difference between college and high school players. I'm curious about this. Uh, in football, you cannot draft a high school player, and and from the in the, from the NFL, you can't draft a high school player. True. Yeah. Correct. Right. Uh, in NBA, you cannot draft a player out of high school any longer. He's got to play at least a year in college or overseas. Yep. Um, in baseball, you can do this. In fact, baseball, you can sign. 16-year-olds. As long you, as they're not American, yeah. As long as, as long as they're not American, which is maybe, right, needs to be reviewed, that plan. The um, Now, here's the thing. It, it seemed as though when, I, I don't know, I mean, when, when the NBA in particular, that's the one that I know the most about, um, when they decided that it was, it was imperative for a player to go to a year of college or play overseas, uh, I assume it seems as though it had to do with it was that rule was passed for two reasons. One was as maybe a sort of deal with the NCAA to make sure they were getting all the best talent. Um, and then the other was because teams were almost were, teams were almost injuring themselves by selecting high schoolers who weren't ready to play and um, by essentially ruining I mean, by destroying themselves and also the players involved. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think when the rule is passed, if I'm correct, the NBDL, which is like their minor league system, didn't even really exist or was not in place in an effective way. So teams were drafting these like 18-year-old kids who weren't ready to play in the NBA and then putting them on the end of their bench where they wouldn't play. And because, you know, in, in at least in baseball, if you're drafted out of high school, there's almost no chance you're going to the major leagues. You're going to play. You're going to go to a development organization. You're going to get to, you know, uh, try and get better and eventually work your way to the major leagues. In the NBA, that wasn't the case. You would have this 18-year-old kid traveling around in the NBA, having all the entrapments of having a lot of money and being on the road all the time and not being expected to be game ready for the next day. If you're an 18-year-old with a lot of money who doesn't need to perform at your job, you just need to sit on the bench and, you know, pretend like you don't have a hangover. Probably pretty easy to go live the lifestyle 
Uh, it was not a good development situation for these kids at all. Uh, no, I'm not sure that spending one year in college is dramatically better, but it, you know, I think the, the lack of a minor league system in both the NFL and the NBA makes them significantly different than in Major League Baseball. Right. And, and so you're saying, you're saying, yeah, the, the development system is what matters. Do you think, do you think there would be more success with that program now with drafting high school basketball players because there's an, in, because of the existence of the NBDL? Yeah, probably. I mean, I think obviously guys like LeBron James and uh, Kevin Garnett and some of these guys have proven that like the very top tier of high school players don't need to go to college. You know, they they can step right into the NBA and play at that level and contribute at that level right away. Uh, the second tier guys who aren't quite ready, uh, I'm not so sure. And this is you know probably a, an argument for a basketball podcast. I'm not sure that they're getting anything out of college that they wouldn't get from a, a minor league year, uh, kind of playing professional basketball. They're essentially uh, professional athletes under the table in college anyway. Uh, not not to cast aspersions at any of the uh, big financial uh, <laughs> universities that are raking in millions and millions of dollars and just keep happening to get the best recruits every year. But I, you know, I think I'll we cast all cast aspersions against them. <laughs> right. I mean, I think we all understand <laughs> that these players are getting financial benefits more often than not. Uh, so we might as well just put them in the NBDL and right, or uh, they're not getting financial, or they're not getting financial benefits, and they're and they're getting screwed. So right, so right, the honest ones are uh, <laughs> you know broke and poor, but though you know a, a decent amount of them are probably uh, getting taken care of in some way under the table, uh, and so you know I'm not sure that their situation is really all that different from being in a minor league, except for they're not being treated fairly and it's all having to be hidden from public. Right, and also maybe well in because in major league or in in baseball. Isn't there a difference in terms of development? I feel like there have been studies conducted. Players who are taken out of high school or out of the, the um, Latin America and are given a chance to like to develop as actual <clears throat> athletes in that sport end up perhaps ahead of the curve than those players who go to college and are and are developing there. Yeah, I think the tricky thing about those studies is there's always a bit of a selection bias in that generally. The guys who are the best talents aren't right. aren't going to school because they already have millions of dollars on the table. Uh, so the guys who go to college are generally players who have some kind of inferiority with them when they're 18. Uh, like Steven Strasburg is a pretty good example, right? Like he was barely a prospect when he was 18, and he went to college and lost 100 pounds and gained 10 miles an hour in his fastball and became a very different player. Uh, you know, I think if he would have been throwing 100 miles an hour as an 18-year-old, he wouldn't have ever gone to college. And so, uh, you know, you're essentially selecting out the best players from that pool. Uh, so it's not exactly an apples to oranges study, but I do think there's probably uh, a decent amount of truth to the idea that going to going pro out of high school is probably better for your long-term development than going to college. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, on this uh, topic, you you wrote about um, because it was a thing that was important. Uh, you wrote about the uh, the Brady Aiken situation. Brady Aiken, of course, was a player who was selected out of high school, not signed by the Houston Astros, or opted not to sign with the Houston Astros. There, you could think about it multiple ways, and uh, I think that's in part the thing about what you're writing is that we don't know we don't know a lot of what went on. Uh, uh, another thing that we don't know on is it, uh, we don't know about uh, is uh, precisely what Brady Aiken's medical records show. Uh, we do know that in the meantime, uh, since he didn't sign or since uh, with or since the Astros didn't sign him, uh, he is now having to undergo Tommy John surgery. Yeah. I mean, this is a tricky situation because, like, I think in the aftermath of the news when Aiken uh, announced that he underwent Tommy John surgery last Wednesday, I believe it was, 
there was kind of a rush to say this justifies the Astros, right? Like they were right all along to kind of uh, how they handled negotiations and to let Aiken uh, not sign and to lose the number one overall pick and, and you know, their future picks or their subsequent picks because they also uh, weren't able to use the, the allocation of their pool money to sign uh, Jacob Nix and Mac Marshall. Uh, so, you know, they took a blow on this and a lot of people were saying, okay, well, because, uh, Brady Aiken had Tommy John surgery, this proves that the Astros were right. And I'm not so sure that that's the case. I think, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, what I was trying to say is it's okay to not have an opinion on this one because we just don't know the key elements that would, uh, kind of allow us to figure out who the, the villain was, if there was a villain here. Like it could just be two sides who each had a reasonable point and they disagreed on the middle and they couldn't meet in the middle. Uh, I will say, you know, even back when they drafted him, uh, or not too long after they drafted him and some of the news about, uh, concerns about his physical came out, there were whispers, uh, you know, last July that Aiken needed Tommy John surgery then. Uh, the, his camp uh, completely denied it and said he was totally fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, this wasn't necessarily an unexpected development and, you know, Aiken will say, he felt something, or he did say, he felt something pop when he was pitching on the, on the mound in an IMG last week, and so this wasn't an issue before then. Um, other people who have either looked at the medicals or uh, had some inside information into what the Astros believed uh, thought that this was an issue that w- required Tommy John surgery six months ago, and so maybe this wasn't, you know, his elbow popped last week. Maybe his elbow had already popped, and now he just got around to fixing it. So uh, it's certainly a a case where there's differing opinions on both sides and different uh, information on both sides. And it's from our perspective as outsiders, it's basically impossible to know what to believe. Right. And and so even, even in the case though, uh, if you say we do know uh, that uh, if we had seen the records, like your, the medical records, you're still talking about a, a question of probability with regard to the fact that he'll experience arm trouble. Right. And it's not, there's no, uh, it's not the zero or one. Well, yeah, I mean, I think us seeing the medical records probably wouldn't have helped us because we would have been like, what are we looking at here? I mean, yeah, there's a, a, a picture of a guy's elbow. Like, all right, I don't know what I'm seeing here. But, like, <laughs> uh, if we had, you know, been able to consult with actual medical experts who knew what they were looking at, uh, right, there might have been disagreement. And I think this is a thing that we see pretty regularly where you guys are getting, you know, guys are going and getting second and third opinions. And they're saying, you know, it's not clear cut that when a guy looks at your MRI and says you need Tommy John surgery that every doctor who looks at your MRI is going to say the same thing. Right. And so I think what we had in this case most likely is the Astros team doctors had a different opinion than the ones that Aiken's representatives were listening to. And because there were differing medical diagnoses, the two sides couldn't agree on what the risk of future injury was, and therefore they didn't agree on what his value was as a draft pick. Right, and uh, it's probably, I don't know, is it even less clear right now as to what his value is as a draft pick? Because we, uh, you know, I mean, uh, for those people who live in New England, it doesn't seem like June is approaching, but it, it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, it you know, the draft will occur. I mean, I assume that, it, I mean, do you think it's even less clear what, what his value is? Well, I think that now the comparisons shift a little bit, where previously the thought was he might still be in the mix for the number one overall pick. Uh, obviously, the Astros weren't going to draft him again, but, you know, a top selection uh, where the draft pool would have been in that same five, six, seven million dollar range as it was last time around, and he might have asked for the same amount of money, and maybe we would have done this little dance again. Now, that's not going to happen. No one's going to take him with the top 
you know, three selection, even though this is not a great draft. Uh, you know, I think the general consensus now is he probably kind of follows the Lucas Giolito career path, where uh, Giolito was the consensus top arm heading into the draft and then blew out and needed Tommy John surgery, and I think he fell to 18th overall with the Nationals and got $3.5 million. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's been a few other recent draft picks. Jeff Hoffman with the Blue Jays, I think, went ninth overall and got something around there, $3 million. That's probably what Aiken's going to get now is somewhere in that $3 million range uh, going in the middle of the first round, maybe even in the top 10, towards the back end of the top 10 if a team like the Cubs wants to take a flyer on him. Um, you know, he's not going to end up with no, no money, and I think that's one of the things that uh, when people are saying, man, he walked away from $5 million. No, he didn't. He walked away from $2 million or whatever the marginal difference is in terms of what he would have gotten from the Astros offer last year and what he'll get from another organization this year. Uh, he didn't go from $5 million to zero. He went from $5 million to the expectation of three, three and a half million, something like that. Wait, wait, the, the, he was pitching at IMG Academy. Does that essentially function as a JC, or does it have a different definition? It's basically the, uh, you know, IMG is like an agency, and so they just t- set up a kind of a, a league for their their guys. And so, like, Aiken was essentially throwing, uh, you know, not that different from maybe like spring training, a minor league spring training complex. Uh, it's, you know, not a competitive league where they're keeping standings. It's essentially just to keep their guys in shape. Okay, all right. Um, we're talking about elbows. We have among the things we're talking about we're talking about elbows. Uh, Christian Vasquez is a Boston Red Sox catcher. Not anymore. Not, not for, yeah, right. Not for the moment. Uh, uh, and I think he was. Um, I mean, some offensive skills were probably most well acquitted by uh, by his catcher defense. Yeah, he was uh, the new framing superstar. Right, and um, you could do that without a uh, without a right arm, but you need the right arm to to do a bunch of other things that are pretty essential to the job of catching. I think if he tried to catch with uh, a torn UCL, which it probably has, I think he's heading to go see James Andrews on Wednesday, and he's already been placed on the 60-ADL, which, you know, you can put two and two together. Uh, It would be pretty difficult for him to throw runners out trying to steal bases. Uh, I think it would actually be a fun experiment to see if, like, if Christian Vasquez's framing skills could outweigh the expected stolen base totals he would allow by having an arm that needed Tommy John surgery and not being able to throw anyone out. Like, you know, he'd probably give up a couple hundred stolen bases. Uh, but if he's really that good of a framer, maybe it's worth it. Maybe we'll, like, run the numbers on. Maybe you should do that since you wrote about Jonathan Lucroy never striking out. How good would uh, Christian Vasquez's framing skills need to be in order to justify him, like, literally never being able to throw out a base stealer? If you took away – you just totally took away one, one skill. Well, what's the uh... – what is a sort of upper end? I mean, it depends. You compare him with maybe you can maybe you compare him only with lefty pitchers, talented lefty pitchers. Do the Red Sox have any of those? Yeah, they have Wade Miley. Uh, Wade Miley is actually very hard to steal off of, right? So this is like one of those like kind of fascinating questions. Is like you can, you only really have stolen base attempts with a certain type of player because you know regardless of how diminished the catcher's throwing arm is, you're you're not going to send you know, Jose Abreu on a straight steal of second base. Right. Uh, even if the catcher can, you know, roll, only has to, like, roll the ball back to the mound, it's not clear that the pitcher couldn't, like, run in, pick up the ball, and throw to second base before Abreu got there. So, uh, you know, you'd have kind of this interesting game theory of, like, who do you send and how often do they have to get on base? And usually the guys who are pretty good base stealers don't get on base a ton. Uh, and, you know, so maybe uh, there would be more pickoffs and, and, you know, I don't know that it would be the most exciting thing in the world, mm-hmm. but at least for one game, it would be pretty interesting to see, like, uh, how often would a team try and steal on a guy who needs Tommy John surgery? It'd be, it'd be like a fun thing to watch for a day. Would it affect, well, too bad for the guy. I mean, it is too bad for the guy 
to begin with, who has to have the Tommy John surgery. He's sitting there with a torn UCL, <laughs> which hopefully, uh, which probably wait, we discussed this before. It probably doesn't actually like uh, um, affect him like actively like during his normal day. Well, I mean, he probably you know can't lift heavy objects or something. It has some effect on him, but it's right. not nearly as extreme for just a human being as it is for a baseball player. For a baseball player, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, pro- uh, probably want to get that. Just get it checked out. Just get get it checked out by Doctor James Andrews. See what's happening. Yeah, um, most likely it's that surgery. I mean, usually on these kind of things, if they put you on the DL before you go visit the surgeon, you're probably going to have surgery. Right. Uh, they picked up Sandy Leone. Yep. Um, they already had Ryan Hannigan. Yep. And they have one of the better catching prospects in the majors in Blake Swihart. Uh, yeah, at least the guy who's rated as one of the best catching prospects, but maybe not major league ready. Okay. So how did, uh, what, what would be the arrangement? Hannigan starting Leon backup? Yeah, I think so. Hannigan's going to play way more often than Sandy Leon. Okay. And Hannigan, well, he's another framer, isn't he? He is. He's, a, he's basically Christian Vasquez's upside. To some extent, I mean, maybe Vasquez might be even better defensively, but very similar skill sets in that Hannigan draws walks, makes a lot of contact, has zero power, and is an excellent defensive catcher, throws runners out, is very good behind the plate. Um, you know, everything that goes with kind of the the catch-and-throw defender, uh, Ryan Hannigan is specializes in and then doesn't have any power, which a lot of these guys don't have any power. Right, so, uh, so they basically, the Red Sox had two of them, now they have one of them. Yeah, basically. And now they have an older, more injury-prone version. Uh, so I think, you know, the thing with Hannigan is he hasn't ever really caught a full season's worth of games. It's not clear that his body will hold up for a full season's worth of games. So Leon is around so that they don't have to wear him down too early in the season. But my guess would be they're hoping Swihart can come up maybe in May or June and, and at least maybe not be the full-time catcher, but split more time with Hannigan than Leon can. Hey, uh, I was thinking about, uh, um, I guess partially because, I mean, it, it's my job to do so. I was thinking about Francisco Cervelli today. Uh, um, also because he's Italian. He's Italian. He's actually, well, he's uh, uh, Italian, but by way of Venezuela, I think. Um, okay. Well, yeah. with a name like Cervelli, he should be Italian. Yeah, well, he's, his family is Italian, I think. But I think they, they you know, because a lot of Italians left the country there. Um and he went to his chose Venezuela. I don't. I'm not gonna say it's a good or bad choice, but they could have. You know, you could have could have ended up in Buenos Aires. Is all. Yeah. I sometimes think about that with my family. I said, guys, come on. Could have been in Buenos Aires. All the delicious food. But the um, he's gonna he's gonna be a starter for the first time, really. First time yeah. on purpose. His, uh, right. His offensive skills over the course of his career have been uh, varied. Sometimes he struck out a bunch. Last year he struck out 25% of his plate appearances. In other seasons he struck out like 13%. I mean, what's the uh, – are you – you know, he's got projections, but obviously any projection has uh, has a, uh, a margin of error around it. His, his, his seems to be larger than it would be for other offensive players. He, yeah, he's I mean, been playing in the league for a while. Yeah, well, he's a kind of guy who's, when he's played, he hasn't played a lot, right? Like, he's got 100 at-bats here and 200 at-bats there. He's never really been, like, a regular. So, you haven't say he has, like, a season with a 13% strikeout rate. What's that, like, 85 plate appearances with a 13% strikeout rate? Right. I mean, that was 300, but that was okay. the most he's ever played, and it was also 2010, which was, you know, five years ago. Right. So, yeah. you, you basically have these, like, col- collection of small samples that offer... Uh, you know, of uh, varying, uh, opinions, that's when you collect them all and, you know, weight them a little bit, but just generally take the larger whole and say, okay, I don't care about this season rate, I don't care about that season rate, what's his overall rate? It's probably, what, 17, 18%, something like that. Yeah, right. It is. Yeah. It is. So, so that's what you should expect. Something close to that career average, not, career. not those individual seasons, which don't matter very much at all. 
Right. And he's another, he's another, uh, I mean, is he basically the same skill set we've been discussing with regard to Vasquez and Hannigan? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pirates have, uh, you know, kind of hit gold with, uh, stealing Yankee catching players <laughs> over the last few years with Russell Martin and Chris Stewart and now Cervelli. They basically just keep going to the Bronx and finding good defensive catchers who can hit a little bit, uh, and they're gonna try it again. And what, the Yankees don't keep these guys because they need something better than that? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to think of, like, the most perplexing transactions of the last few years, the Yankees letting Russell Martin sign with the Pirates for $12 million has to be up there. Because it's not like Russell Martin was terrible. He wasn't great with the Pirates or with the Yankees last year, but he was a serviceable major league catcher who still did a bunch of things right in his down year. His final year in New York was, like, a 230 BABIP. It was not that hard to look at him and say, like, ah, this guy's a bargain. Like, there's a, there's a decent rebound candidate here. And the Pirates outbid the Yankees which is just so bizarre, for the services of a pretty good veteran catcher with good defensive skills who can hit a little bit. And then the next year, the Yankees were like, man, we screwed up. We should give Brian McCann $85 million for the same skill set. <laughs> uh, Russell, Russell Martin's had an interesting career because I remember when he first came up with the with the Dodgers and he was like an, or at least he seemed to me, I should say, like an offense first uh, sort of guy. And then he was used a lot, and he seemed to wear down. But then he's had, like, what, two careers since then. Yeah, the funny thing about him is he's almost uh, like a little bit of a modern-day, lesser version of Craig Biggio, where both of them came up as, like, smaller guys with speed and athleticism. And, like, Russell Martin, every single time the World Baseball Classic comes around, he's begging Team Canada to let him play shortstop because he doesn't want to put the catching strain on his body, and also he just likes to play shortstop. And, you know, the Astros had Craig Biggio catching for a little while, and they're like, whatever, you're 5'10", and you're fast. You're a second baseman. They right. moved him out from behind the plate. Uh, Martin could have easily had a major league career as an infielder. He could have played second base or third base, probably not shortstop, but he could have been an infielder, and he kind of had the skill set of a middle infielder. He stole a bunch of bases as a younger player. Right. He was fast, and he was athletic, and he didn't have a lot of power. I mean, it was basically the middle infielder skill set, uh, which is not usually the catcher skill set. Uh, but he was also very good defensively and, and good at the kinds of things that, you know, even before they were getting quantified, catchers liked throwing to Russell Martin. Uh, and I think he was able to stick behind the plate because he was uh, so good at those things and provided a decent amount of offensive skill. And then the Dodgers ran him into the ground. Uh, at least that's what it looked like when he really declined in New York. Um, but, you know, maybe they didn't run him into the ground so much that Pittsburgh couldn't fi- figure out how to get him back to life. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny if you look at, not that it's uh, end-all, be-all in terms of an assessment of speed, but if you look at uh, Russell Martin's speed scores, it's almost a direct line downward. I mean, which, you know, every player's speed declines, but he, you know, he starts playing catcher full-time, and it's just... Yeah, I mean, catching is hard on your body. Yeah. I think that's um, the reality. Yeah. Glad I don't have to do it. Life is hard on your body. Catching makes it worse. I don't know that your life is that hard on your body. Like, do your knuckles hurt from all the typing? No, but uh, the sitting is hard. My my, uh, what is this? My lumbar region suffers as a result. Dave Cameron. Yeah. Well, you get the better posture, maybe. I know you need to. What do you do? You just sit on the couch. I have a standing desk. Oh, that you feel like that's improved? Yeah, I think it's helped. I mean, I don't use it eight hours a day, and I don't have like one of these treadmill desks like some of these people. But you know, I think it's helped to be able to. Stand up for significant parts of the day, and, and and you know I will say like I don't necessarily find myself being that comfortable typing at it. So a lot of times if I'm going to write, I'll sit down. But to like browse and read and uh, you know respond to email and that kind of stuff, yeah, I think it works pretty well. Okay, all right. Well, I'll look into it. For the most part, though, my lumbar region it gets very tight, and I start my body becomes shaped like an S. Hmm. I don't really want to think about your body being uh, the shape. <laughs> Or your body in general. I don't, don't think about it. No, I don't. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. 
I went into for a physical with my doctor. He said, ugh. Yeah. Was that the medical diagnosis he just wrote down? Yeah, ugh. Ugh. yeah. There's only there's only you can, you can, there's only Yiddish letters from what my body looks like. By the way, this will be maybe the most or uh, the least baseball-y thing I ever mentioned on this podcast. But mm-hmm. I will say, uh, as someone who has uh, a, a wife who works in oncology and has some history of cancer, the 60 minutes thing on like injecting uh, glioblastoma tumors in the brain with polio in order to kill them was amazing. And if you didn't watch 60 Minutes last night, not that I'm like, I guess I'm an old man now that I watch 60 Minutes occasionally. Mm-hmm. Google for like 60 minutes polio. Wait, they kill it with tumors? No, they kill the tumor with polio. They, like, take the polio vaccine and re-engineer it so it doesn't give you polio. And then they stick this polio vaccine in your tumor, and the polio vaccine kills it. Well, the polio vaccine essentially tells your body, like, hey, this tumor over here has polio. You should do something about it. And your body actually says, oh, yeah, let's do that. And it kills it. Really? It's it's pretty amazing. That's great. I guess it's great for people with tumors in their brain. Yeah, well, they said, like, a glioblastoma, like, the life expectancy is, like, three to four months, and they had, uh, what, a girl who's been alive for, like, four years uh, since they put polio in her head, which is amazing. Since <laughs> they put polio in her head. Yeah. Is that the, is that the medical terminology? <laughs> That's what they did. They actually showed you, like, here's us dropping some polio into this person's brain. <laughs> they put polio in her head. Yeah, and then uh, she was alive. It was right. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good. Of course that's good. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, Dave Kierman, you're done. You fulfill your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, thank you. All right. I'm glad we could end on a polio note. That's Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.